0: Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. We're super excited to hang with y'all for another week. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another wild episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast where we talk everything conservation, education, and well, you know me, fascination as well. My name's Matt, and I'm joined by my two very good friends and co-hosts.
1: I'm CJ. And
2: I'm Brittany.
0: And we are super duper excited to bring you another installment in a series that we've started this season. Now, before we get into any of that, because I don't want to spoil anything, Brittany and CJ, how you been this week? Any Do anything uh, wild this week? Um, The
1: most wild thing that I did this week was go to see the last remaining birds that are here before it gets really cold. <laughs> saw some juncos, saw some sparrows. Just pretty much yeah. Maybe a cardinal or two, but there's it's it's getting quiet here in Chicago. It's getting quiet.
2: I'm doing pretty well gearing up to get to come back home to that Chicago windy city, so Coming home for an entire week, and I'm pretty pumped.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm Brittany, I'm, I'm glad you're coming home, but my uh, myself and good friend of the podcast, Jack Cross, just visited you in St. Louis.
2: This is true. This is true. But a, we're we're but glad you're
1: coming home regardless. We're glad you're coming home regardless. It
2: just means we get to extend the party longer. That's I all. It.
1: I love a good party.
2: Who doesn't?
1: <laughs> Matt, what have you been up to this week?
0: You know, just recently went to the Newport Aquarium. It was a blast. I love that aquarium. To in Newport, Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. It's a beautiful little place. They've got guitar fish, which is really sick. They're also known as shark rays, and it's just a blast of an aquarium. I've always been a big fan of them. Other than that, I've not got much to report. We're coming down to the end of the semester, which means that things are wrapping up a little bit. But it feels good to be making some headway in some of my classes. So... Not too much to report, but just living my life, living the best life that I can possibly live. And I'm glad to hear that y'all are as well.
1: I'm really glad you're living the best life, Matt. Mm-hmm. Let's get into our first segment.
0: Absolutely. Let's get jumped right in to our creature feature. <laughs> So we're going to dive right into our creature feature for this week, the American alligator. These reptilian beasts have been around for only about millions of years and are a stark reminder of the wildlife that inhabited the world much before we came around. Their armored bodies, their muscular tails and their super duper strong jaws are reminiscent of the dinosaurs that they once shared a planet with. In modern times, These creatures are found in the freshwater rivers, lakes, marshes, and swamps of the southeastern United States. However, they spread far and wide throughout myth and reality. This week we're talking about wild NYC, New York City. And for years, people have actually believed that American alligators have made homes in the sewers underneath New York. Alligators have been rescued from New York, but they generally aren't found there. Most of them are actually escaped pets or released pets, but hunts for alligators continue throughout the city. People are actually convinced that these alligators might even be mutants, which birthed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles story. Now, these sewer alligators are a part of pop culture now, and they're also iconic.
1: Yeah, the the New York uh, sewer gators really just reminds me of a few summers ago. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but our good friend Chance the Snapper, which was a uh, apparently a released pet alligator that was released in the Humboldt Park Lagoon. And people spent days trying to find him, and then he was eventually caught, and now he's at a facility in Florida. So Chance the Snapper is our local Chicago uh, gator. And that's really what that reminded me of. So thanks for sparking that memory for me, Matt.
0: I remember when we were all working together in our shared collective past and Chance the Snapper came up and it was a blast. thought it was really funny. and It was cool to kind of reminisce about that as well.
1: It was like Gator Watch every day we have to see. Did yeah. they get the gator today? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. How about today? <laughs> this is really funny. Well, we'll talk about some other wild finds in cities, specifically New York City, later in the episode. But for now, it'd kind of be a shame if we didn't get into some, you know, looking into the New York Times. So let's move into some current events.
1: I really like that really like the New York Times joke. It's not funny, but I think it's funny.
0: I was pretty proud of it.
1: So my current event this week uh, comes from the Washington Post, and it's titled Drug Lord Pablo Escobar's Smuggled Hippos in Colombia. Officials are now sterilizing the invasive species. So a few weeks ago, we talked about exotic pets way before the Spooky Bunch. And one of the stories that we brought up was about these cocaine hippos in Colombia these massive aquatic mammals from Africa that were brought into Colombia by drug kingpin Pablo Escobar as its pets and escaped captivity and are now running rampant all across Colombia. People did not expect that the hippos would like survive there. It was like logistically very difficult to move them around, so officials basically left them there thinking that they would die Instead they flourished and in the 27 years since Pablo Escobar's death the group of four has swelled between 80 and 120 hippos and researchers estimate that the numbers will skyrocket to more than 1400 by 2039 if left alone. By then the hippos will have done irreversible damage to the environment and their numbers will be impossible to control. Authorities this year have intervened using a chemical contraceptive to sterilize the animals Without the blowback that would come from exterminating what has become basically the town pet. Developed by the US Agriculture Department, the drug Gonacon inhabits the production of an animal's sex hormones, such as estrogen or testosterone, putting it in a non reproductive state. The USDA has donated 55 doses of the drug to Colombian wildlife officials. And like I said, Colombia has proved to be a hippo paradise. And hippos native of Africa, seasonal droughts keep their population tamed down, making them vulnerable to disease and to predators. Without a natural check, their numbers have exploded in Colombia. We've talked a lot about invasive species. We've talked a lot about uh, exotic pets. And it's a really interesting challenge to try and find a way around some of these issues. So, you know, sterilizing these hippos might just be uh, a, a good play as long as it's not affecting local wildlife. and Ideally, that will help the problem.
2: I love that this is your current event. It makes me think of the fact that in October, a local farm near in like the Chicagoland area had zebras escape, which I know was another current event we did um, where there was a herd of them that escapes. uh, I believe it was in Maryland. I don't remember exactly. Um, But it just it's. It's very interesting to see them try to come up with solutions to a problem that was created by human interference. So, it's just interesting. Thank you for sharing.
0: So, my current event comes from Manga Bay, written on October 15th, 2021. Titled, As Seizures of Poached Giant Clams Rise, Links to Ivory Trade Surface. Now, this is super duper weird. But really, really, really fascinating of an event. So basically what's been going on is in April, 2021, authorities in the Philippines, this article states, made a notable discovery. And basically what they were finding is that they were finding tons and tons of shells of giant clams being stockpiled. This is a thing that has been going around throughout the Philippines that they were finding and is similarly Coming around in a lot of places. And what's going on is basically these clams are being stockpiled because it might be linked to organized crime and specifically poaching crime syndicates. Now, this is really, really, really weird. But what they're doing is that carvers are using these shells, these clam shells, as ivory substitutes. And so what's happening is that what you're seeing is a potential link to where this trade of these shells, this massive harvest might actually be hurting elephants because it is continuing to drive that ivory trade, right? You're not taking away the desire for things that look like ivory. You're not even real, really, really realistically Taking away an environmental impact, for example, like with Tagua nut, which is a really kind of special one because it kind of fits into fair trade. Right, farmers can grow Tagua nuts, carve it, stuff like that. That's a fairly regulated trade that gives a lot of people a business when you come to poaching, they might not have had before. However, these clams are being harvested kind of a little bit illegally and being kind of brought into this elephant trade. I would presume probably potentially for pulling the wool over people's eyes. But regardless, now they're so worried about the lack of sustainability from this trade that they are wanting to list the giant clam under CITES, which we've talked about before on the podcast. Currently, there's not much around them. They do seizures and they confiscate, but it's not super highly regulated. And it's kind of focused only on small level quantities when in reality, these massive syndicates are what really need to be honed in on to. But regardless, the fact of the matter is that this shell trade contributing to the potential growing and yet still really, really prominent ivory trade is a super interesting link that you might not think was a thing, but now you do. That's what this current event's for. Really looking forward to a, a swift and marketable resolution to this because this is frightening stuff. You know, we've made a lot of headway with taking away the ivory trade or like rhino horns and stuff like that. And you'd hate to see it persisting because of clams of all things.
2: So my my current event comes from Monaga Bay and it is from October 6th, so a little bit uh, a little bit further back in the year, but still just as important, it says gorilla baby boom sparks hope in DRC, but threats to great apes persist. So the article says for, for three years in a row, for Unga, um, which I apologize if I said that wrong, National Park in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo has been reporting new births in gorilla families. and it is thanks to conservation efforts um, that have promoted wildlife development. But the whole article talks about how it, it almost serves as a warning that even though there's been all of these new births and that's super exciting, that there are still so many threats that are relevant and po- that are posed to these gorillas um, due to human interventions. And so while it's amazing that um, conservation efforts have been able to start having an impact on populations, I think Matt said it in a couple episodes, that doesn't mean that we should stop having those protections be put in place. And so the whole article talks about since January of 2021, there's actually been nine new births to different um, guerrilla troops, which is fantastic, and it's it's amazing, and it's a really great hit for guerrilla populations. Um, but again, don't forget that these... This amazing current event has happened because of the conservation efforts that have been put in place, and so we can't forget that those need to stay in place to keep those populations um, because poaching is a huge problem, and there's a current problem with people wanting to mine, and it's causing a lot of conflict. And so um, it's just an, a good article to keep us aware and keep us um, kind of on our toes that Good things are happening and we should stay encouraged. But um, to keep those good things happening, we need to keep going.
0: Well, let's put a wrap on that. We'll close the tabloids for yet another day. Let's get into our main episode.
1: start spreading the
3: news i'm leaving today
0: i want to be a part of it new, new york. york wild new york now i'll admit you know cj and i have done wild chicago before but we kind of grew up around there none of us really have ties to the big old the big apple nyc So we're here now, lucky enough to have a guest. So let's cut to our interview with Tom Hines. All righty, so we are here now with our guest, Tom Hines. Before we kind of get into talking about the main bulk of what we're going to talk today, can you uh, give us an introduction to who you are, your background, just let us know who Tom Hines is.
3: Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you uh, so much for having me on your podcast. It's so fun to be here. And I'm so excited to talk about my favorite topic, which is New York City wildlife. So I like, you know, it's funny, I get the question a lot, like, did you like, did you have a background in in, like wildlife or biology? And I I didn't, I was like an English major. And this was sort of like a, a way to like, um, and that was a long time ago. but <laughs> This was a really a way to to write a book about New York City. And, and the animals were really, like, uh, when in studying it and writing it and researching it, like, definitely learned the real story of New York City. But, like, all these details and all these, like, factors of things that, like, led to the city becoming what it is uh, really did get there on the backs of animals, uh, large and small. And it really was just, like, such a surprising thing. I was working in, like, corporate copywriter like very very dry uh, packaging like uh, like at like things you would get for free at checkout at a pharmacy like a pharmacy discount card which is like pretty like you can only write (laughs) there's not like a lot of room for creativity on like a little laminated card uh, with like pharmacy codes on it and uh, we just wanted to try some not necessarily creative writing but just sort of like extracurricular writing and uh decided to look into why people always said there were alligators in the sewer and that's like a thing i had heard uh growing up and like i think i saw it referenced in sharknado 2 and on the simpsons and and like thomas and books so it's like this thing that's like in the zeitgeist but like why like where did that come from and uh when i looked into it it, it turned out there were alligators in the sewers in the in the 30s and 40s and 50s and wrote an article about it uh, for this website called Untap New York, which is just sort of like a, did you know this about New York, which was perfect for what I was trying to do. And uh, after I wrote that article, a friend of mine was like, you know what you should do next is you should go see these uh, escaped Argentinian parrots in Greenwood Cemetery. And Greenwood Cemetery is the oldest cemetery in New York. If it's not the oldest, it's like one of the oldest institutions in New York. It predates Central Park and Prospect Park. And uh, There are like a hundred escaped Argentinian monk parrots uh, that of unknown provenance that live in the this Gothic steeple that you enter under when you walk into the cemetery, and um, a light just kind of went off in my head. I was like, this could be a book. There's like, there's a there's there's I know there's oysters, and I had heard in the back of my mind that beavers had returned for the first time in 200 years, and immediately I kind of like saw a table of contents, just sort of like, and from there. It were like another like three years part you know doing this part-time working full-time at a pr agency like again like really dry stuff and i had published like 10 of these articles and was like i should just go for this and with my wife's undying support and and good humor and everything else went out and uh, found an agent and um you know just like brought this book proposal to them and was like i think there are 24 bo- uh, animals that we can write about and they're like do you think you could try to like expand that. And overnight, I was able to find 40 uh, or an additional 16 to get the number to 40. And I always joke, if I wrote the book today, there could be 50 animals. Like there's just one thing kind of led to another. You, I would be like, out of talk about whales. And uh, uh, I'd hear about these little mollusks that have their that ended up getting their own chapter in the book. It's that really interesting story uh, in its own right. So. Yeah, that's the long story. That's the long story is as, as short as I, <laughs> as I could tell it. Yeah. And the book uh, came out. And it was just like the most fun uh, work project I've ever had in my life. It was just it was like a real dream come true to do it.
1: That's absolutely amazing. You mentioned the monk parrots. We actually have uh, monk parrots here in Chicago too. just like a wild right. collection of them. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with, you know, big urban cities and these monk parrots. I
3: think they're hardy. And I think that they You know like they're adaptable yeah and uh because i think other escaped pets like don't make it the first winter right like they don't that's a big thing yeah and so and actually i have a chapter in in wild city about um the european starling which of course is like in the hundreds of millions in north america is you know like a, a major threat has like brought down airlines and uh we're all introduced to north america by way of central park in like 1870 in new york city and the guy who did it, uh, his name is Eugene Shiflin. He released every bird, it was one of 160 birds that he had released into Central Park. They were all the birds that were ever mentioned in the plays of Shakespeare. And the starling was just like hardy enough, you know, like they weren't the only one released, but like they just like, could survive a New York City winter and the other elements that go into propagating a species like as well as they have in the continent. But yeah, just it's and, and it's like a, everywhere. Yeah, and, and it's like, like, yeah, and it's like kind of like a funny like allegory for New York too, because like there are all these animals like pigeons and the starlings and coyotes, which I know you all have in Chicago, and the parrots and even you know, rats and bedbugs, like none of these things are from New York, but they're like indistinguishable from New York. And and yeah. you know, on the people side, like unless you're Lenapi Native American, like you're not from New York either. You're from some far-flung corner of the world where your parents are. Uh, and so it's, there's a lot of like parallels I found between some of the animal experiences with some of the human experiences.
1: For sure. I am also a a humanities person, my majors in humanities and stuff and kind of coming at it from like that perspective. Can you talk to us a little bit more about like the publication side of the book? Like I'm really fascinated in in, in that type of deal.
3: Yeah. I mean, so, you know, like when I thought of this idea, like, you know, the first thing I did was like does this exist <laughs> you know like because that's sometimes your brain you're like i just saw this book in a bookstore an hour ago that's why i thought it was my idea and i, I found that there weren't real there were like field guides which were like a little drier and um almost had like a, they're not like wicked they were almost like small wikipedia pages or like back of the baseball card stats just like not like a narrative to them and I, one of the things i really wanted to do is like you know i like the pigeon is a very, became a very interesting animal to me. Like I'd never had considered a pigeon before this exercise. And now I'm like fascinated with them. But I also really love the New Yorkers that started a hospital for pigeons and why they do that and what happened to them in their childhood that they wanted to take care of pigeons as a vocation. And almost to every animal, there is some like human New Yorker balance to the story. And the, the, the shorter way that I say this is that it's, um, The book is uh part new york post which is like our trashy daily tabloid and part national geographic so it's like a little bit like informative but like irreverent you know and like just like it's it's not it's like part science book it's not really like uh dry it's anecdotal yeah yeah exactly
1: Exactly. i love that
2: it's amazing it's amazing because it's kind of just bringing right conservation down to a everyday person level and i think that's that's inspiring in and of itself. Wow. Um, but I know you're talking about the the monk parrot and how that was kind of, you, like you saw a book coming out of that. Um, but what about nature in New York has inspired you to write this book?
3: Well, and I, I, I think when I came to find this, uh, or I came to, this was like not initially, but what I think is so interesting is that with all respect to every other city uh, in the country or in the world, like New York City biologically is actually pretty special. You know, like it, like in Manhattan alone, uh, there's some statistic that I always use when I'm talking about the book that uh, I think it's Yellowstone has 2.2 million acres and has uh, 65 ecosystems within it, which is like a huge, that's why it's a national, that's why it's the jewel of the national park. Uh, system but Manhattan in 1609 but then that's the sort of the dividing line that's like the pre-european time uh, had in 2200 acres had 55 ecosystems so it, like Manhattan and New York uh, the the thinking is it had the United States been settled west to east that it could have been a national park like it really uh, has like such uh, these, you know, this, these huge bays and it's it's a protected harbor. I mean, these big wide rivers and all these different islands and marshes. And, you know, there were like half the world's oysters were in New York City before the Europeans came and beavers and coyotes. And, and we're right on the Atlantic flyway with all these birds and um, and plus the introduced birds and the introduced, you know, uh, coyotes and, and, and things like that. So I, I guess what I'm saying is like New York really was like New York's. Uh, ecology and biodiversity is so unexpected and so uh, so real and so rich. And you know there was a time when I was pitching the book and, and working with an agent and we were talking to publishers, um, that they were like, we really like this idea, but like it's just New York. Like what if you did a chapter that was like, oh, and like this wildlife story of Paris and this wildlife story. And like that's a really interesting book and I would love to maybe write it one day. But this book like, like the story of New York being this like real ecological gem, then getting highly urbanized and polluted to hell, and then sort of having this like small recovery that we're in in the last 40 years is to me an interesting story. Like it, it, it was not just like, oh, it's pizza rat, which we do talk about pizza rat. Like, don't get me wrong. You can't like not talk about pizza rat, but there's, there's something special about New York City uh, ecologically. And I think that's surprising. It was surprising to me for sure.
0: One thing that I, 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 I'm super excited with just talking to you about, because, I mean, I know all three of us um, feel the same way about Chicago, too, with the, how much intense passion and, like, reverence we have towards where we come from right. and this understanding of being able to look past, like, the concrete jungle and see these areas for what they are. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving this, and I'm geeking out a little <laughs> bit because I can well, see the overlaps.
3: Even, like, Chicago or Detroit or, like, like, you know, San Francisco, like all of these cities, like they made sense ecologically. And like, they had like, you know, like New York had oysters and beavers. Like that was why New York started. Uh, at, and i would used the term started because there were really were people living here before. And I, and I, and I think it's important to like, to be like always fully aware of that. But like the reason why New Amsterdam was started as a Dutch colony was because beaver were here. And so like, the, these cities grew to be these concrete jungles because they were naturally advantageous places to begin with, right? And so that's the, that I mean, I, except for like D.C., which was like, and I love D.C., I used to live in D.C., but like D.C. was like uninhabited like 250 years ago. <laughs> like, like nobody even lived there. And like Chicago, Detroit, you know, like they were like native places before that. Like people really lived there and like D.C. like was like a swamp, like literally was a swampy mess. And I, I say that in the book with love with love I, I love I think it's a great city um <laughs> but yeah uh but yeah these and like I, I don't know like I think that the idea of like urban wildlife and I, you know it gets into this in the in uh, towards the end of the book but like you know look like more people do live in in cities and like it is important for you know everyone but especially children to like identify with wildlife because you know like Jane Goodall like did what she did as an adult because she had an experience with wildlife as a child. The woman who runs the Pigeon Hospital, like, had an experience as a child. Uh, I think Richard, Richard Attleboro, or not, what's the guy's, what's the English guy's name? The, the, like, uh, the David Richard. Attenborough? David Attenborough, sorry, David Attenborough. Same thing, like, and he credits, like, his lifelong vocation to being, uh, having an experience as a kid. And so I think it's important that, like, we celebrate urban wildlife because, like, we do need the people who live there to take care of uh, of this environment. One of the one of the, like the really like uh, preachy things I, I I hope people take away from this book very like practical advice is like please don't ever let uh, balloons go because these massive sea turtles like uh, loggerheads and Kemp's Ridley and uh, sea turtles, uh, green sea turtles, they all swim through New York Harbor and they see a deflated balloon, and they think it's a jellyfish, and they go into gastrointestinal distress, and it's like, this is like a Pixar, you know, (laughs) like, like they're like Disney movies about these, like, beautiful things, and they're, like, in the East River, like, and I just think if, like, you make that connection, uh, you'll be more likely to, like, not let your balloon slip into the harbor, or, like, not let plastic go, you know, it just, it starts with that awareness, and with that, like, love of the city, you know, for me, anyway.
1: Yeah, it, this is something I say all the time on the podcast. It's a quote from uh, Freeman Tilden, um, who is kind of the like founder, I guess, of modern interpretation. I don't know if you're familiar, Tom. Mm. Um, but the quote goes, it's like from understanding appreciation, from appreciation protection, something like that. Yeah. And the goal is to like, once you understand it, right, you can like g- learn to love it and appreciate it. And then you g- you want to protect it. Right. Some people then, just don't know that releasing balloons has had such a big impact on no, these sea turtles.
3: No, I didn't. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I thought it was probably, I mean, like I had a notion it was probably like right. not a good thing to do, but like I didn't right. know why, you know, and like there wasn't like a, a very charming, like endangered animal on the other side exactly. of it, but I, you know? And yeah. And I, and I think that's, you know, one of my hopes was for this book was like, yeah. like people, I, I don't want to like browbeat anybody. I don't have right. any position to do that. I just think that like, if you knew. You know, like we have a thing in New York now. What's what, like we had, and it's not in the book, but like last year, um, we had a lot of owls. We had like really cool owls. We had a barred owl. We had a snowy owl. And not even like we get snowy owls sometimes in the outskirts of the city, but like we had a snowy owl in Central Park. Like it was unbelievable. Uh, It like put on a, like hundreds of people would go every night. It would always arrive at the same place at the same time. It was, it was magical. It was so cool. Um, and then that, the snowy owl left, but the barred owl stayed for a long time. And, became, you know, like buried the barred owl. It had like a Twitter account. Like people loved it. And it died this summer. And they did an autopsy on it. And it, it wasn't the cause of death, but it had a lot of rat poison uh, in its bloodstream. And this happens to red-tailed hawks. This happens to peregrine falcons. This happens to, you know, you, like you name it. And we have such beautiful raptors and such um, so many raptors. And I don't, that's another thing I don't think people really know about New York. Um, and so if you poison the rats, like, you know, uh, it goes up the food chain, obviously. And so, but what are the options? Well, you know, the other options that you have a more, uh, thoughtful food waste strategy. And then that gets into like, well, then you have to remove parking. And then you start to think about it and you're like, okay, well, free parking on the street is killing owls. You know, like it really kind of does, but those things, those connections are real. I, I moved through them pretty quickly, but like those connections are real. And I think that when we like have more information, like you said, like, we're gonna make different decisions. And I think that adding, keeping owls alive to the sanitation arguments are all kind of valid and, and should be made. So I wasn't, I already gone to press when that had happened.
1: Unfortunately, That's a wild connection about like how just yeah. very like simple and even like systemic things like yeah. parking on the street yeah. Yeah. can is- lead to such big changes for conservation. Yeah,
3: because I'm gonna go to a community board meeting and be like, I don't want there to be like, a Composting container or like a separate garbage truck that comes and takes my food scraps. Right. So instead, like what we do in New York is like we put these like mountains of trash bags and like rats are like amazing. They're feeding us again. Like in the rat's exactly. mind, it's like this is incredible. Exactly. And then we lay out poison for the rats that we've just fed and they're like, we're the reason their populations are so big because of our, our lack of investment and our lack of thoughtful food waste strategy. And then we're like, oh, man, that that Twitter bird or that Twitter owl is dead. We're like, well, yeah, like we kind of did that, you know, or like we could have avoided that or we can avoid it in the future is the better way to do it. But yeah, those those connections, I think, are kind of real.
2: Absolutely. I think it's something that I know here on the Birdie Bunch, we all have experience in, in their, those connections that you talked about. We've all had that. And now you've got three people working in conservation at some point. And it sounds like four people working <laughs> conservation um, because of some like experience that we've all had. And I know for me personally, it's one of my driving factors in my career. So it's awesome to hear that same passion for I know we all kind of share it for Chicago, yeah. um, but it's 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 good to hear that uh, people are inspired and doing amazing, awesome things in other yeah. big cities, yeah. right? And, and I and I
3: and I'll say like we you know we were talking earlier like this this and I know it's like you know it's happening in Chicago and LA and like people really are and and that's you know I wanted to talk about the animals but I, there and it's obviously it's just New York specific but like there are people really doing great work and and it's not a new york city trend it's a national international trend and cities are learning from one another and it's incredible and like i just think it's worth really noting i also just before i forget i just want to like make a real pitch to the three of you to come to new york because you would love it uh just from like the wildlife you know like come during spring migration and just like park yourself in central park or like jamaica bay or like like do it like strictly wildlife you know like don't even go to times square just like do <laughs> just do the full uh
1: the, ber- the birdie bunch travels 2022 yes. who's to, say? Who's it
2: to is, say it is on the bucket list she hopefully do
0: 2022 it. we'll yeah. see how yeah, this, we'll everything see. How we'll goes so,
1: right. <laughs> um <laughs> i guess are there any other spots you mentioned central park very briefly are there any other like really significant places in mm-hmm. new york yeah that so, wildlife thrives
3: yeah absolutely and so i know like i'm gonna show you something about like this is an audio recording <laughs> but and I'll, I'll just describe it so in the opening pages of the book, like there's a map of the city and all the boroughs sort of laid out, and all the place names on it are kind of like mentioned throughout the book, so that you can be like, where is that? And it's a it's a thing I really wanted to do in the book was like, there were like places that I wanted to write about, but I was like, what's the hook? Like, where's the animal? You know? And so, uh, in Staten Island, as an example, there's a, a a new city park that's opening. It's called Fresh Kills. To be three times the size of Central Park. And um, Staten Island's not as dense, obviously, as Manhattan, uh, but it's a massive, huge park for a city, 2,200 acres, and uh, it used to be the world's largest landfill up until very recently. And they have this like complicated piping and meshing so they can capture the methane and like so that the the like it doesn't leach out and like all like and like the hill it's like these four <clears throat> massive hills of covered up trash. And it's the most serene, beautiful, you would never know place. And the grasshopper sparrow uh, has sort of like, tie, you know, hitched its, I don't know, like a paw. <laughs> My metaphor is getting, is falling apart. But like, uh, they've like established themselves at this dump that does not smell anymore, is just like a beautiful, like, has streams going through it. So Fresh Kills is a place in the Bronx, like right through the middle of the Bronx, and the Bronx being the only uh of the five boroughs that's actually physically connected to the united states uh there's a there's a freshwater river running right through the middle of it, and like i don't think people in the bronx know that or i mean obviously some most people do but like it's it's sort of like this hidden gem and uh there's a group of people up there have been rehabbing it for 30 years now they have beaver they have they had a bobcat recently and um you can take a canoe ride like right through this like highly dense uh neighborhood um we talked about greenwood cemetery that's in brooklyn that's the highest point in brooklyn it's you know greenwood cemetery used to be the second most popular tourist destination in the country like behind niagara falls it's and so when when the birds come into brooklyn it's the highest point it's green you know obviously because there's nobody there so that's kind of a must and then in queens uh jamaica bay is is really special and central park really does actually live up to the hype i went there last weekend it's it like, it's probably the best place in New York. So I think that's one spot for every borough. I think we, we kind of uh, made that
1: judicious. Yeah. That's perfect. And again, I, I know I have your book on back order. I think Matt had your book on back order. <laughs> I also so we, do. There you go. So <laughs> we will see uh, those. Um... So
2: Birdie Bunch goes to New York and just uses your book as a guide. yeah it's yeah basically what yeah. Like,
3: yeah that's mm-hmm. what that's what's gonna happen. I'll give you like five Twitter accounts to follow, and they'll you'll, <laughs> you'll be running around the city chasing like a glossy ibis and like oh, a, you know oh, like God knows what else. I mean there's that some, would be yeah. ideal. <laughs> oh man, that's great
0: so i guess one thing that i'm particularly interested in because we uh you you touched on it a little bit before um and our creature feature for today was the american alligator uh you touched a bit about the history i want to hear the story of the american alligator in new york i want the whole kit and caboodle
3: so so uh i grew up like 45 minutes away from here my parents are from brooklyn my grandparents everybody and, like, they would always tell me, they're like, well, when we were growing up in New York, uh, you know, like, we had alligators in the sewers, It was much tougher. And I just thought it was a thing my parents were telling me. And then I came to see that, like, there were all these references. And I was like, oh, this is this thing. So I looked into it. And people really did, like, sort of intentionally or unintentionally flush their alligators down the toilet. It started as, like, a small pet craze. Like, you could order away the back of a magazine. There'd be, like, an ad. Like, And then you'd get a box in the mail with like a little baby alligator in it. Or people would go to Florida or the Bahamas or the Caribbean or wherever. uh, And they would like sell them for like a dollar and kids would bring their alligators home as as pets. Now, this is a problem for so many reasons, but uh, space is like the first, right? Like in New York City, like we don't have like a ton of space for like even many like dogs, you know? So it's like an alligator is like quickly becomes a problem. And... Uh, like what to do. And this legend, uh, this origin story says that then the alligators were flushed down the toilet. And because New York City had all these other like vermin and, you know, we have all these rats, uh, the connection was sort of loosely made. I don't think this is actually what happened, but that, okay, well, they're, they're eating all the rats and that's how they're surviving. And in the 1930s, they really were like, these reports of like alligators being like pulled out of manholes and um like i think there was one in the the most famous one was in harlem which is the northern end of manhattan and uh they pulled these three teenagers pulled out like a seven or eight foot alligator uh and then they would be like found on like a subway platform and then like like in that in that bronx river i was talking about uh there were some found there and then it like became this like fantastical thing right like it was sort of like this like uh there or there no so I'm there was also like a a nonfiction book sorry I'm skipping ahead one step in the '50s about the sewer systems and all of the underground workings of New York. It's called the 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 world beneath the city. I think is what it's called, and they interviewed a sanitation commissioner who was like, oh yeah yeah no there are a ton down there like on the record he was like no there's so many and we had to like go down and like kill them all, uh, and so that's one of the explanations as to like why they don't exist anymore. But having said that, like every five years or so, roughly, you know, in the, like, the last 20 years, there's like, up oh, there's an alligator in the sewer, like uh, out in Queens or, you know, like up, uptown, like, like, or there was one walking out of a sewer grade or like a, um, like a storm drain or something. So like, they do like, as soon as we're like, put them back into like, that's just a myth. That's just a tall tale. Like another one shows up. So it, it's like pretty irregular uh, and, and the i actually spoke to a guy in the book uh who's from chicago uh his name is jim Neshi n-e-s-c-i and he was he would say that he was the american uh steve berwin and they were like buddies uh there you know um uh and he said that it happens a lot he said that it happened in chicago uh and that i was uh, gonna say we had a navigator yeah. just a couple years ago yeah yeah, yeah. snapper right and but his his his, like, main takeaway, or my main takeaway from talking to him was that, like, an al- an alligator can get down there and, like, probably survive. But uh, alligator, like, reproduction and, like, raising uh, baby alligators and, like, you know, essentially propagating the species is, like, probably a non-starter. Like, for, for like, reasons of, like, uh, I talked to him first. So it was, like, this is a really long time ago, but I feel like they couldn't, like, find they probably wouldn't be able to find like the suitable materials to build a nest and like that would have like if you gamed it out like that's where it would have stopped and so like that and that explains why you can find it like the lone individuals but why it's not like a real like a more common uh
0: phenomenon occurrence (laughs) i'm just a little in awe uh (laughs) that's one of those things that like when you hear the, the mythology behind urban legends and the way that those stories propagate and how it becomes such a fantastic, it's such a, the intersectionality between culture and conservation is something that I find highly fascinating, mm. but um, it's super exciting. And now I'm excited as hell to read your book because <laughs> holy cow, this is right up my alley. This is.
3: <laughs> uh, I, I also have like a whole uh, chapter on the, um, on the Peregrine Falcon because the Peregrine Falcon is like very common in New York. But their conservation story is like, you know, I'm sure you know it. It's crazy. It's crazy, and I got to talk to the Peregrine Fund uh, a little bit for the book. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. It's a, it's real. That, that's the, that's my, that's probably one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to write that, and I have a, I have a whole other article about uh, that uh, in a separate, uh, in the lead up to writing the book. That was one of the more fun things. I've
1: for sure. Well, we've mentioned the book enough times, Tom. I feel like we haven't actually said what the title is. Oh
3: my gosh, you're right. <laughs> do you
1: want to like let our listeners, let the nature lovers know why, where they can find your book? Sure thing.
3: Yeah, sure thing. Um, the book is called uh, Wild City. A subtitle is A Brief History of New York City and 40 Animals. And I'll just say that it's also illustrated by someone who's become a friend, uh, Kath Nash, who's a brilliant illustrator. And uh, all 40 of the animals have their own full page illustration of like them do- doing something in New York uh, and they're really cool. They're not just like a-, a static thing. It's like an animal in action in New York. She's also did this great maps uh, of like where you can find wildlife in New York today and also some like older maps, of like what New York City looked like uh, before 1609. And it's available uh you know with uh with the spaceman jeff bezos but you can also <laughs> go to uh to bookshop.org is where i you know highly encourage everybody to do their shopping because i think that matches you with your with your local um independent bookstore and like you might as well like you know yeah. keep those people in business <laughs> as long as we can bookers, right? Especially I mean, right, now, especially yeah, right now yeah yeah so yeah books called wild city and uh you know make sure you guys get to New York. You all get to New York sometime. Cause it's it, I think first a wildlife specific uh, tour and you, you will... will be the first to know. Tom, right, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> we've through,
1: through the podcast, we've made a bunch of friends out in the East coast and they all tell us the same thing. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I guess that wraps up anything else that you want to plug uh, Tom before we wrap up our episode. No, I
3: just really appreciate you guys having me on. This is a lot of fun. You of you so course, much. we
1: are so happy to have <laughs> you here.
0: Extremely, this has been a blast. Thank you so much. I, yeah. this is why I love these recordings. What can I say? Ready, yeah. Matt, CJ. Thank you so much. No, thank, thank you, you so much for coming, coming
2: on. Thanks. Bye. So it's nice, fun to talk to you.
0: All right. Alrighty. Well, thank you to Tom Hines for teaching all of us a little bit thing about wild New York city. And thank you to Frank Sinatra for that introduction to the whole entire thing. Now kind of transitioning outwards a little bit, right? Some of us have wanted to travel to New York city before it's me. I've always wanted to kind of go there, but if I were to do so, I would share it on my social media. Where can people follow your travels on the social medias, CJ and Brittany?
1: I've actually been to New York. Oh. So this week, I will probably post a picture from my time at the Central Park Zoo. And you can find that on my Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco.
2: I have also been to New York, and I don't know if I have photos, but if I do, I will also post those. But you can find them on my Instagram at thebritney_bunch T-H-E. B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B is in boy, U-N-C-H.
0: And as stated, I've never been to New York City, but if I had, you'd be able to find it at Matt Valiga on Instagram. That is M-A-T-T-V is in Victor, A-L-I-G-A. And if you're bored of me individually, you can also find us all collectively at the Birdie Bunch podcast on Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook as well. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about us, you can also go check out our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. There you'll find links to things like the merch store or the blog posts or about us profile, kind of descriptions of who we are as well. There's a lot of interesting content on that website, so make sure to go check it out. One of those interesting things that you can find right next to our merch store is our Patreon. That's right, we have multiple levels of Patroners patrons, that's what they call them. And if you'd like to be a patron, please go visit that link That's on the support us page on that. Thank you to Gabe underlay for being our patron If you'd like to get shouted out just like Gabe Go check that link out if you'd like to support us But can't financially because I totally understand that frankly, I don't have the financials to support myself I'll continue to make that joke until I'm financially well off You can go do a couple things, right? First off, go share this podcast with a friend, right? I know a lot of you probably listening haven't been to New York City, but you probably learned a thing or two about the place from our lovely guest, Tom Hines. Thank you again, Tom, by the way. And I'm sure a lot of you know people haven't been to New York as well. And if they want to learn where the places to go to see the cool native stuff in New York City, well, they should listen to this podcast. Same thing as with Wild Chicago. We really appreciate you sharing the podcast already. And that's the best way to get the word out. If you'd also like to help, you can also leave us a review. We love having reviews. They help us hone in on our craft a lot better. We currently don't have any new ones to read out. But if you leave us a five-star review, well, it'll come out of my mouth specifically. I promise. Or if you put in the review, please don't let Matt read this. CJ or Brittany can also do the honors, but that's up for you to decide, really. We will do what you ask. Well, I hate to leave you all here because we had a really nice journey, a nice visit to the city that never sleeps, the Big Apple, the NYC, this place of the sewer gators, New York City, and I hate saying goodbye on such a lovely trip, but we've kind of reached our time limit, so we'll keep this series going. We'll take you on some of our other travels, but for now, We'll catch you next time.
1: spreading bunch. the news. I'm leaving today.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Blunch podcast.
1: We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos. Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant and Connor Whitman for being our music producer.
2: The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.